Our scripture reading is 2 Corinthians 9, 1-5. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for, you, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated, to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Welcome to the Painted Door. If you're new, my name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here uh, at the church. Um, a little something different to start off our time. Last week, uh, after the sermon concluded, uh, after worship, I should say, a few people uh, met me in the hall with a similar question regarding the content of the sermon. If you recall here uh, last week, the sermon addressed the very complicated and complex relationship between pastors and congregations. Uh, And the hope of the sermon was that, by way of the witness of the Apostle Paul and the writer of the book of Hebrews, we might develop some insight to better foster trust and honor within that very complicated and complex uh, pastor-congregational relationship. Now, the question that many of you had in the wake of that sermon, which might have been anticipated by a better preacher, uh, is whether our church is presently suffering from a trust deficit. Okay, the question was, did we preach on that to address any specific trust issues in our church at present? Was the sermon sort of aimed at people in particular? To answer that question, I can say categorically no. Uh, There have been seasons, certainly in our church, like other churches, wherein we have suffered through that kind of trust deficit, where many people in the congregation were wrestling through whether they could trust the leaders of our church. At present, we are really not in that kind of a space. Uh, We find ourselves actually in a place where we're enjoying quite a bit of trust, mutual trust, I think, between the pastors and really all the leaders uh, of the church and the members of the church, and I'm thankful for that. We're in a season of great joy uh, on that front. Okay, so then why address this issue of a trust deficit if that is not presently a burning issue in our church? Well, for one, it might be helpful for you all to know the sermons that we preach at the Painted Door, at least in outline form, are prepared between six and twelve months prior to the given Sunday in which they are delivered. So the message last week on the pastor and congregational relationship, uh, that message in title, in big idea, in the scripture text that was to be used, and in the general outline uh, had been ready since early summer 
of last year. It just so happened that we arrived at it last week. Uh, That's always been the way that we have approached the preaching calendar in the painted door. There's lots of different views among church leaders about how exactly you should develop your preaching calendar, balancing the wisdom between being prepared and being ready in the moment to deliver a word for the day. Uh, We've always skewed toward being prepared, perhaps over-prepared. Right now, our preaching calendar is built out for the entirety of this year into next year, and I actually have all of Lent laid out for 2017. Um, Just allow me that little section of OCD in my life. The whole rest of my life looks nothing like that. Um, But it's a great comfort to me to know where we are going. It allows both myself and the other preachers in this church to be prepared, to really steep ourselves in the texts of Scripture, in the thoughts that we want to share with you all, such that they become a part of us before we seek to preach them. It's, I think, a way of being more incarnational in the way that we preach. Um, And also, I think it prevents us from getting stuck in the kind of reactionary preaching that responds immediately to particular tensions that might come up in the body. I actually think it's a little bit unfair for preachers to do that, for them to use the pulpit to speak into current conflicts. feels a bit heavy-handed to me. Better to address any relational discord directly in person-to-person conversation uh, with those who are involved in that discord. So that's been our approach. I think it will continue to be our approach uh, going forward. There was a second question as well that I want to address regarding uh, last week's sermon, also around a specific point in the sermon. One of the points uh, that I made last week was that if you find yourself in a place where you cannot trust the leaders in this church, that it might be better for you to move to a church where you can trust the leaders of that church. The point was that it does no good either to the person involved or to the church body as a whole for someone to try to remain in a church even when there's no trust, perhaps out of some misguided sense of loyalty or something of the sort. Now the question that came up around that point from several people was, are you saying that if people disagree with the leaders of this church in some decision or approach or view, that they would do better to move on to another church? Uh, Let me answer that again categorically, no, because trust and disagreement, or should say trust and agreement, are not the same thing. Okay, by way of example, uh, I can say this. I think my wife is sitting here. Yes. Um, I didn't check with her. Uh, In our marriage, we regularly disagree. Um, She might even disagree with me sharing this, for example, right? We regularly disagree, and we regularly disagree about pretty important things. But... Because we trust one another, because there is trust in our relationship, we are actually able to engage in those disagreements 
in a way that is profitable, in a way that leads us both to a greater intimacy and mutual knowledge of one another. Trust actually provides the foundation, the context, for more engagement in disagreement. It's true in marriages, and it's true in churches. Churches that lack trust or suffer from a deficit of trust, there is no space for disagreement. There's oftentimes much fear from those who do disagree with, say, the prevailing narrative. They're afraid that if they bring up their disagreement, it might cost them greatly. It might fracture the relationship. It might lead to them needing to go find another community. May that never be the case in our church. I hope that we can nullify that reality from playing out here. We're hopeful, actually, that the level of trust that we share with one another will allow for more engagement of disagreement. If someone disagrees with the leaders of this church or with the prevailing view of this church in any matter, our hope would be that we would engage thoughtfully in that and come to a mutual understanding of one another through that. It does not mean that we'll come to agreement. In my marriage, oftentimes the disagreements between my wife and I, we cannot resolve them if the definition of resolution is agreement. But we can engage in them if the definition of success, the definition of the win, is that we come to understand one another more and come into a deeper intimacy. See, the real power and beauty of trust is exposed in the middle of disagreement. That's when trust matters. Apart from disagreement, you'll never know whether there's trust. That's true in a marriage. It's true in churches. I hope that that can be true in our church, that as our disagreements are engaged, we see that this is a safe place, a trusting place for that. Now, onward. This week's text, uh, we are going to look at the Apostle Paul again as he continues in this letter to the church in Corinth, this letter that comes to us in the name of Second Corinthians. We know that this is probably the third or perhaps even fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, uh, but in it he is addressing a lot of these issues of pastor-church relationship and the trust and honor dynamics therein. And as he gets into it today, as we look at our text for today, he again is building on this dynamic, this question of trust between churches and the pastors who lead them. We find ourselves now in the middle of the letter. We're in chapter 9 of a 13-chapter letter. And in the middle of this letter, as we've seen for the past few weeks, Paul is bringing up this issue of taking up a collection to support the poverty-stricken churches over in Judea. The churches in and around Jerusalem are in great need. Paul has been traveling throughout the region, raising money to support them. He brings up this issue of taking up the collection with the Corinthians here in this letter. It would have been an issue the Corinthians were already familiar with. At an earlier date, Paul had already raised this idea with them of taking up a collection for the churches in Judea. The Corinthians, in fact, had already previously committed to participate 
in that collection. So Paul is not here saying anything new to them. He's simply raising this old issue for them, and he means to remind them here of that previous commitment that they had previously committed to give. What's more, he means to remind them of who they are. Not just that they would be people of their word and honor their previous commitment, but he means to remind them of who they are, that they would be people of the truth, people who live in accord with who they are, that they, in truth, because of their life in Christ, are generous people. This is the identity that they have in Christ, and Paul is reminding them of that. So he says this in verse 1 of chapter 9. He says, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Okay, Paul here is saying, look, I shouldn't even be bringing this up with you because I know that you are already all in. I know on the basis of your previous commitment, I know on the basis of my previous interaction with you that you want to, in the truest sense of yourself, participate in this act of generosity, that you want to care for the needs of the saints in Judea. I really don't even need to mention this here. I know for sure that you're already wanting to participate. In fact, I know so much. I have so much confidence in that that I have been spending the last year bragging about all of you to all of the churches throughout Macedonia And the churches there have been quite stirred up by your example of generosity. So really, I don't here need to talk to you about anything. I already know that you're ready to participate. Now, I want to point out something here, uh, which I think is really important. And it's about the Apostle Paul. And it has to do with how we see him as we read the Scripture. And I think here we get the beginning of a glimpse into Paul's regular, broken fallenness. Turns out he's just another insecure person on the journey of faith like the rest of us. It's tricky sometimes to remember that because in his letters in the New Testament, as they come to us, we are reading a witness from Paul about the goodness of God that is inspired by God and therefore trustworthy and profitable for us. And so it can be easy to forget that there is a person, a real flesh and blood person, Paul, formerly Saul, living behind these letters. There's a real flesh and blood person that God inspired to write these letters And that real flesh and blood person has insecurities. He has besetting sins. Paul is not a super pastor. In fact, later on in this very letter, he will contrast himself with the super pastors. He's not a super Christian. He is a person of faith who is a leader in the church, but he's also someone who forgets people's names. He's also someone who wrestles with his own insecurities about his ministry, about his ministry's effectiveness, about whether his ministry is 
respectable. Okay, he's someone who struggles to admit when he's wrong. Just like the rest of us. Pastors, in fact, on the whole, tend to put a lot of stock in how their church is doing. So for pastors, typically, I'll include myself in that number, if the church is thriving, if the people are loving one another, if there is much fruit of the Spirit being born up, if there is generosity, pastors tend to conclude, sometimes unwittingly, even subconsciously, that this then vindicates the value of their life's work, that their ministry is effective, respectable, and meaningful. And on the flip side, when churches are struggling, when there is little fruit of the Spirit, when people are embittered toward one another, when people are leaving the faith even, pastors tend to conclude that they and their ministry are worthless, that they're of no value. Okay, we're seeing, I think, a little bit of that here in Paul. He is not immune to those kinds of insecurities. In fact, we're going to see that much more in chapters 10 through 13, the final section of this letter. Paul's insecurity and even passive aggressiveness is going to jump off the page at you. You'll really have to try to not see it. Here we get a glimpse uh, of that insecurity. The Corinthians have made this generous commitment. Paul has been off boasting about it to other churches. Hey, you know, that church I planted in Corinth, they're really generous people. Giving is up. The church is doing well. The church is thriving. Okay, now, some of you might read this passage and think, I'm making too much of that. You might not think that's necessarily there. Maybe he's just spreading good news about what's happening. But I don't think so, because listen to what he says next in verses 3 and 4. He says, I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be, Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Okay, Paul says, I've been bragging about you as generous people, so please be prepared to be generous people. Otherwise, when I bring people to you, I'm going to be really embarrassed about my ineffective ministry. My reputation is going to suffer. I'm going to be humiliated. Okay, Paul here has his eyes on himself. He's thinking about his own uh, reputation as an effective minister. Can I just say this humanizes Paul so much for me? Uh, helps me see him as a relatable Christian, as another person on this journey of faith, much like all of us. I relate, in fact, to all of these insecurities perfectly. I can remember very vividly, especially as a brand new church plant five plus years ago, that I suffered on a week-to-week basis from many of these kinds of insecurities. It was truly the case that as a young church plant, things went pretty well for us 
We were able to gather people. We were able, able to pay our bills. And so I would give good reports about what was happening back to the Christians in Seattle, the church in Seattle that had sent us here, back to the donors that were scattered around the world who were supporting the work. I would give good reports to them, and then I had on some Sundays in particular more than others this almost sinking dread that one or more of those communicated with persons would show up to visit our gathering. Okay? Hear this. I'm not defending the way I am. I'm confessing. Okay? And I fully anticipate that your respect level for me is decreasing. All right? Um, But on some Sundays in particular, I can remember the first uh, summer as a little church plant. And this would always happen around holidays because as a young church, young church plant, you tend to be a gathering of people that are not yet rooted in the area. It's hard to get rooted people to come to an unrooted church, much easier to get unrooted people to join an unrooted church. So on holidays, unrooted people return home to where they have roots, to where their family and friends are, and the church is left sort of fractured and uh, rather pathetic. And I can remember that for summer on July 4th weekend, I think I've mentioned this before, it's vivid in my memory, Um, and we kind of anticipated that it would be a difficult Sunday, so I had Scott Behrman preach so that I wouldn't have to endure that, Um, and I think we had, you know, about eight kids and ten adults, which is a difficult crowd to preach to, actually, and I was thinking in my mind, I just hope nobody chose this Sunday to visit. None of these people that I've given all these great reports to about how the community is really coming together and we're being able to pay our bills, you know, they were to come in, they would say, it's been a year and this is the community that you've gathered, right? So there was a lot of insecurity in me as a pastor and a lot of stock put in how the church was doing, even a lot of identity as a minister as to whether or not I was effective or respectable in this work, whether or not it was worthwhile. It was all sort of tied up in that. Okay, I think that's what's happening here with Paul. What do you know? We look at these pages, and it turns out Paul is an insecure pastor, uh, just like me. That's actually quite encouraging, because what we also see here in these pages is that God doesn't seem to much care about that. He doesn't seem to much care whether Paul is insecure. He doesn't seem to much care whether God is, or Paul is effective. God seems all too happy to have Paul participating in this work, independent from any measure of outcomes. The truth is, and this is a precious truth, God loves insecure people. He loves fearful people. I mean, the whole witness of Scripture testifies to a God who is scanning the globe, looking for weak people where he might manifest himself most greatly. It's almost as though the more meager and weak the frame, the more excited and with more vigor God comes and manifests his power among those people. 
Paul certainly qualified as one of those who was weak and meager in frame. God powerfully manifested his life in Paul. Likewise, the church in Corinth would have qualified as weak and meager in frame. The people of Corinth were not an upstanding people. They were not a respectable people. In fact, Corinth as a city was equivalent, more or less, to Las Vegas. It was a place of profound manipulation, a place of financial defrauding, a place of sexual exploitation. All of that was happening in and among the people of the Corinthian church. Nevertheless, God intended to make his pure and perfect life of love manifest in these people. And we see that play out powerfully over the course of this letter. So never mind Paul's insecurities. God is at work in the Corinthians. Never mind his wondering whether this generosity that he witnessed in them previously, this commitment to participate in the collection, never mind his doubting as to the veracity of that, the pages of this letter and others testify that the life of Christ was real and active in the hearts and minds of the Corinthians. God was at work in Corinth. Paul here, I think, in this letter, is almost trying to talk himself into that. He's almost trying to convince himself of that. And he's not quite able to believe it. And so he's saying, on the one hand, it's superfluous, great word, for me to even ask for you to participate in this collection. I don't even need to ask. I know you will, but I'm going to send some ministers to you to make sure that you really will, make sure the collection is in hand so that when I get there, I won't be humiliated, right? Also, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. All right, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, I am convinced of your readiness. I know of your readiness. I know God is at work in you. On the other hand, let me just hedge my bets and make sure that I don't get humiliated as a worthless pastor. Okay, what are we seeing here in Paul? We're seeing what I mentioned last week, both evidence of the Spirit of God and evidence of the flesh of humanity. We're seeing both at once in Paul. There is an ability on the part of Paul to look at the church in Corinth through eyes of faith in one moment, and then in the very next moment, in the very next breath, the very next paragraph, it's as though he reverts back to seeing them with natural sight. How many of you relate to that experience in your own life of faith? Isn't that the way the life of faith goes? We have almost these flashes of the Spirit wherein we can see through eyes of faith. We see the true story of God at work in us and in our community and in the world, in the people that we love. And then as soon as it comes, it's gone. 
and we rush back to seeing the world through natural vision, seeing ourselves through natural vision, seeing one another through natural vision. We lose faith. We lose the ability to see the work of God in one another. We start making conclusions that are not rooted in faith in any real way. Forget the gospel completely. Our flesh is manifesting and controlling every thought, every word, every deed. I know that's true for me. I'm sure it's true for many of you. I want to spend the rest of our time speaking to you as best I can now through the eyes of faith, looking at our church through the eyes of faith and not according to natural sight. I want to speak to what I think we collectively have seen in one another when we look at one another through eyes of faith. When I look at this church through faith, I remember vividly manifestations of Christ among us. It so happens that in this present month, I'm thinking often about one year ago, about January of 2015, when we buried our friend and pastor, Greg Konauer. And I'm remembering back on what that was like for our community as we walked through that season together And of course, when I remember that, when many of you remember that, there is this acute sense of grief and sadness and sorrow at the loss that Greg is no longer here to lead us. But even more than that, as I look back and I remember that time, what I remember most is the beauty of love. What I remember most is the manifestation of Christ in our church. It was without question the hardest month for many individuals in our church of their lives. And collectively, of course, it was the hardest month for our young church in the six years of our church. Nevertheless, as I've had opportunity to reflect this month, those memories of love, the memory of our sometimes cold church culture melting into this place of warmth and kindness is what plays most vividly across my memory. The memory of our family blanketing Samantha and the children in care. The memory of so many of you holding me up so that I could even speak and minister during those days. I remember all of the affection 
all of the tears, but also all of those times when I was embraced and loved. And I know that that was happening throughout our congregation. I know that many of you have many sweet memories also that I was not privy to. All of those memories, to me, they're like honey. This month, uh, several opportunities to reflect specifically on that time a year ago. First on my birthday, January 3rd, Pastor Wes asked me, what are sort of the highlights of the past year? And the first one that came to mind was the privilege and the honor of being present at the moment when the Lord took Greg home. Participating in the holiness of that moment with fellow saints as we sang and worshipped God and thanked him for all of the beauty and all of the love that he had shown us, both in Greg's life and in Greg's death. Then just a couple of weeks ago, January 13, which was the day of Greg's passing, was able to gather with some friends and remember again together and thank God again and celebrate the life of Greg and the life of God that manifested in our community when we gave him up. And then a few days after that, again, some friends and I went to Greg's graveside and sang hymns and prayed together. All of those things, those times of remembrance, they stirred in me the eyes of faith to see our community for who we are. They put to death in me what is the default condition of our hearts and minds apart from the Lord to look at one another naturally, to fail to see what is true, to fail to see beyond what presents itself to our sight. The memories of the Spirit of God that were present in Greg and our church during that time, those are what is true. God showed us collectively as a church during that season, he showed us who we truly are. He showed us that we are alive in him. He showed us that we are a people of love, that we are a people of care, that we are a people who can lay down our lives for one another and serve one another. So what I mean to say today is the cat is out of the bag. We know now. We know what the life of Christ is. We have tasted it in our lips. We have known it in our hands. 
in our embrace, in our tears. I want all of you who were here with us a year ago to remember that and live according to it. Those of you, many of you even weren't here with us a year ago, remember those times in your life when God has manifested himself in you, when the life of Christ has been made real and visceral to you, when you have known Jesus in your own hands. Remember it and live according to it. Some of you have no such memories. Some of you have not experienced that life of Christ. I can announce to you without reservation that he is offering it to you today, that he is ever-present, offering it by way of his Spirit to all people to receive the life of Christ and be transformed into a person of love, of gentleness, of generosity, of kindness, of service. This is who we are, church. God has proven it to us. He's vindicated his promises to us. Make ready, therefore. Make ready to bear the fruit of God when the season of testing comes again. Because it will come, maybe soon even, when we find ourselves overwhelmed and gasping for air. Make ready now to live in the life of Christ then, to bear the fruit of the Spirit then. Remember who we are. Remember who you are. And live true. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that we don't have need to guess as to who you are from the summary of things we know about you. But we can know who you are from your living your life in us. We thank you that we have known you. We thank you for the experience of Christ in us. Remind us by your spirit of who we truly are. Make us people of your son, members of Christ. Christ. 